The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gildas Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at over 170 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Today's show is sponsored in part by Celgene, Lilly Oncology, and Onyx Pharmaceuticals. Uh, cancer awareness and support for patients has grown exponentially over the years, but there are still some cancers that people seem to avoid talking about or even tend to stigmatize. On this episode today of Frankly Speaking About Cancer, we're taking on some of these cancers and discussing the public reputations they have. Lung cancer, skin cancer, and cervical cancer can all carry negative connotations at times and cause some people to blame the victim more so than other cancers. We've got three guests joining today to talk about these types of cancers and the cancers that most commonly carry a negative stigma, the challenges uh, that face these cancer types because of the perceived stigma, as well as ways to overcome that stigma. Our first guest today is Tamika Felder, founder and chief visionary of Tamika and Friends, Inc., a national nonprofit organization dedicated to cervical cancer awareness through a network of survivors and their friends. Tamika was diagnosed with cervical cancer in 2001 at the age of 25. After completing her treatment, Tamika was inspired to use her experience to help educate women around the world about ways to prevent cervical cancer. Tamika is an international speaker whose favorite topics include young adults and cancer, dating during and after cancer, and sex and cancer. She is passionate about helping cancer survivors live their best life after cancer. Welcome, Tamika. Thank you for having me on again. I'm so happy to be here and to talk about this. Excellent. Uh, Also joining us today is Valerie Guild, co-founder and president of AIM at Melanoma. Valerie is a San Francisco Bay Area native who founded the Charlie Guild Memorial Foundation in 2003 after losing her daughter Charlie to melanoma. This foundation evolved into AIM at Melanoma in 2008, which is the single largest international nonprofit for melanoma research support, patient advocacy, legislation, education, and awareness. Valerie has been president of AIM for over 11 years and has helped thousands with her organization to learn about the dangers of melanoma and the treatment options available to those diagnosed. Thanks for joining, Valerie. Oh, thanks for having me. And also back with us today is uh, Maureen Rigney, Director of Community and Support Services of the Lung Cancer Alliance. Maureen oversees LCA's portfolio of support and outreach services. A licensed clinical social worker, Maureen has been with LCA since 2005. She received her BS in psychology from South Dakota University and her Master of Social Work degree from the Jane Addams College of Social Work at the University of Illinois at Chicago. 
Prior to joining LCA, Maureen worked in the field of community mental health, primarily supervising programs designed to help those with serious mental illness in three states and the District of Columbia. We're happy to have you with us, Maureen. Thanks, Kim. It's great to be back. This is a, a really a fascinating topic. We've got, got a lot of ground to cover today. We've got some experts with us on the show. Um, Maureen, I do want to start with you. I want to uh, start namely because when we think of a cancer type that may potentially be most affected by, you know, quote unquote, the blame game, lung cancer is usually one of the first that comes to mind. Um, can you explain a little bit about the issue of stigma for our listeners and how it is related to a cancer diagnosis in general? Sure, uh, and thanks, Kim. It, it can be kind of hard to uh, define stigma in a way that's uh, easy to understand, but I'll sure do my best. Uh, so we think about stigma as a negative experience that results from something that is perceived to be socially unacceptable. And so in cancer, people can feel blamed or stigmatized for doing or not doing things that may have increased their risk for the cancer that they developed. Uh, there can also be self-stigma, and that's when a person feels gu- guilty themselves for doing or not doing something uh, related to their cancer risk. And so in lung cancer, as well as head and neck cancers and others, uh, the stigma is related to tobacco use, but for other mm-hmm. cancers, of course, it'll be different. Yeah, so let's, so let's dive in, and I know that's your you know, current area of expertise, Maureen, um, with the LCA. Um, as I mentioned, you know, people with lung cancer, uh, faced with a lung cancer diagnosis are very familiar with dealing with blame or with guilt, uh, whether they're tobacco users or not. Can you explain specifically um, the stigma surrounding lung cancer? How common is it today, given everything that we know about lung cancer? Sure. Uh, estimates do vary, but the research shows that anywhere from about uh, actually over 50% to 95% of people diagnosed with lung cancer um, experience stigma in one form or another in some part of their journey. Um, and that does include people who never smoked and those folks who quit a long time ago. And it all too often comes down to just one question, and that question is, did you smoke? And with that comes the assumption that if the person did smoke, they somehow deserve to get lung cancer, which is, of course, uh, not true. Uh, no one deserves to get lung or any type of cancer. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I know certainly at Cancer Support Community, we see quite a bit of this, uh, uh, you know, of this blame and this guilt, which is a whole other added layer of sort of social and emotional pressure um, and issues that people face. Um, Valerie, I, w- I want to switch to you now and talk about melanoma and skin cancer. Melanoma is certainly not immune to this negative stigma that we've been talking about. Can you tell us more about stigma and blame um, surrounding melanoma? So actually, that's fairly recent in the world of melanoma. It's only the last five or ten years that people began to understand the effects of UV radiation and how that causes melanoma. And then the stigma started with, well, people should have known better, especially those people who laid out in the sun and oiled themselves up to get a tan or who purposely did indoor tanning. So Valerie, when did we learn about when did we learn about the connection between that exposure and and melanoma? When did that education start and knowledge start to come forward to the public? So I think there was always certainly a sense among the scientists, but the World Health Organization about eight years ago um, called UV radiation a known carcinogen, putting it in the same category as tobacco. And that's when it really became prevalent um, in the public consciousness that there was this connection between 
being out in the sun and getting melanoma. And did you and do you see then a direct correlation between p- patients feeling guilty or people blaming themselves or, or or maybe pointing the finger at someone who's living with this uh, diagnosis again that they brought it upon themselves due to sun exposure? Yeah, you know, we we actually see more self blame among patients than we do outward blame. And so the patients will often go back and think about not only how they expose themselves to the sun, but we also have another factor in melanoma, which is that we do often have um, an early detection method. You know, you see something on your skin, and very often people will not notice something or say, well, it's probably nothing, and then delay their visit to the dermatologist, and then they feel guilty that they didn't go earlier. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, we're going to dive in a little bit more on melanoma a little later in the show, but I want to turn to Tamika. Um, Tamika, first, can you tell us uh, just for a moment about your own cancer experience? How old were you when you were diagnosed with cervical cancer, and, and, and uh, how, did that, how did that come about? Sure. I was diagnosed with cervical cancer when I was 25 years old in 2001. So this was before the HPV vaccines, and people were really... I I think talking on a public level about uh, cervical cancer and it's called the human papillomavirus. So I I didn't know anything about it. I felt like I was a well-educated woman. I was in the know with a lot of health issues. And it certainly was shocking to me when I found out my cancer was linked to a sexually transmitted infection. And that was a very hard pill to swallow. But I, you know, I pulled myself up by the bootstraps. This was pre-Facebook, um, so there wasn't the social media support that exists today. There wasn't a lot of things for uh, adolescent and young adult people diagnosed with cancer that was still really gaining its momentum. And this was even before Google, so I was it was just AOL searches and um, trying to find out from people um, at my cancer center or secondary doctor referrals about why this happened to me. So I had to have a radical hysterectomy at 25, um, followed by chemotherapy and radiation. Um, I will never be able to carry a child, uh, which, you know, was a very, very painful thing for me to deal with because I always dreamt of having children and, you know, going through that process. And I am I still consider myself a newlywed. Um, in April, I will be married for two years. And it's one of the difficult things. You fall in love and you want to procreate and you want to have a child. And even over a decade later of surviving this disease, which I'm thankful for, you know, the realities of the destruction and the loss that is left behind is still very painful for me. I have amazingly good days, but there are days where, you know, I see a movie and there's a character talking about there's no better thing than motherhood, and I realize what cancer has taken away from me, and it makes me very angry because I'm human. Yeah. Um, yeah, pretty deep, uh, pretty deep stuff, Tamika. Um, we've got a couple of minutes just to, until our first break here, but I know that cervical cancer can be referred to as one of the most preventable cancers, so people may be quick to blame if people aren't getting their screenings and things like that. Does that create a stigma surrounding That's cervical absolutely. cancer? Tell us about that conversation, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of our survivors who come to me and I talk to, and I've actually walked in their shoes, and you think, I brought this upon myself. I did something to myself to get this disease. And and the reality is, it, you know, 
it's taken, I've seen the technology change over the last decade, and it's great that we do have a cancer now that we can, you know, eradicate. We have a cancer that we know the cause, we have the tools to detect it, and we have a vaccine to, you know, eradicate it. But I want women to know who hear this, that women do fall through the cracks. So you need to do everything that you're doing and prevent it. And if it is caught, we want to catch it in stage one. So women don't have to lose their fertility or less die. And so do you think that this stigma is also um, more a more recent phenomenon, Tamika, or has this been I, something I that's been around for a long time? I think a lot of women have been living in silence. I remember thinking when I was diagnosed, I feel like a leper. I don't know anyone else that's had this cancer. And mm-hmm. I felt very isolated, very alone, and I felt a lot of shame. Um, thankfully, Dr. Archie Blyer, who, you know, is interest, instrumental in the young adult movement, he told me about this other cervical cancer survivor, Christine Bays. We got together. She supported me. Once I started speaking out about it, I met other survivors. Mm-hmm. And then... I have people in my own family who told me, you know, in the past few years, you know, I had to go through that. I had cervical dysplasia. Mm. I had pre-cervical cancer. I've had an abnormal pap before. So I think a lot of women were living in shame. No one was really talking about it. But we're starting to see more and more women talking about HPV, their personal connection to it. And with that, we start eliminating the stigma. We start breaking it down. Excellent. We're talking about uh, cancer and the the blame game today. Really, uh, uh, cancers that uh, come along with the heightened uh, with the heightened amount of uh, guilt and and uh, shame. We've got Tamika Felder, Valerie Guild, and Maureen Rigney on the show with us today. Um, we've got uh, we've got a lot to cover. Uh, we're going to take a a quick break here. Uh, don't go away. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices. I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. 
links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you a breakaway from cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, sponsored in part today by Azi, Genentech, and Amgen. Today we're talking about the stigma surrounding cancer. We're talking specifically about lung cancer, skin cancer, melanoma, and cervical cancer. And joining us today is Tamika Felder, founder and chief visionary of Tamika and Friends, Valerie Guild, co-founder and president of the AIM at Melanoma Foundation, and Maureen Rigney, Director of Community and Support Services at the Lung Cancer Alliance. I want to focus this segment on the challenges associated with a cancer diagnosis like the three we mentioned and what we can do to start overcoming um, these challenges. Uh, Tamika, I want to start by talking about the challenges of living with a type of cancer that often receives, uh, receives blame or stigma from the, the, the patient perspective. What are some of those challenges? What's the guilt, the blame that you hear from patients? You know, the biggest guilt is that you don't want anyone to know that you have that type of cancer. I remember one time being at a cancer retreat for women, and uh, someone mistakenly, you know, told someone that I had ovarian cancer. And I didn't correct them. This was early on, you know, in my survivorship, and I just felt like, you know what, it's easy to let them think that because there are always the questions of, oh, well, you know, that's not a real cancer. You know, it's like I went through surgery and chemotherapy like everyone else. Then there are also issues of, you know, people who just don't know what to say. I had a friend who said, you know, they say you get that cancer from sleeping around. And it's a very hard pill to swallow. There's a woman that I've been counseling now for almost a decade. Uh, she's never told her family that she had cervical cancer. She went through this entire process when she was in college alone because she was, she was scared of what people would say. And I, and, and that really bothers me that she's had to suffer alone and I've been only able to counsel her, you know, via Facebook, you know, or the telephone. You know, we live in a world today where we should not be carrying these stigmas around. And I encourage women, I know the other, you know, guests that we have on the day, we're all about encouraging people. And I, you know, I say this often, I think the stigma of HPV hurts the prevention of cervical cancer. And that's just something that we shouldn't be dealing with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, Maureen, I know that you uh, guys at LCA are dealing with a lot of patients who are trying to cope with these challenges, cope with the stigma um, and, uh, and the blame. What do you say to those patients who say, you know, I did this to myself, um, I don't deserve the same care or, or support or treatment as somebody else, somebody else? You know, how do you approach it with the patient? Sure. Uh, well, it, it is such a complicated um, matter, the smoking. And so if someone smoked, we, we try to remind them that most people started smoking when they were young, uh, before we knew much about uh, you know, cigarettes and, and how addictive they are. Um, 
we also remind them that when when people do start young, the the brain just isn't capable of. Uh, recognizing risk at such a young age. And so oftentimes people get addicted before they really understand that risk. Um, We also don't understand why some people who smoke get lung cancer and others don't. So it's Mm -hmm. not, it's not a direct um, causal relationship with smoking. Some people who smoke get lung cancer, some people who don't, uh, who smoke don't get lung cancer. Um, So we really try to just, and also we remind them of, you know, the, the, the way that the tobacco companies um, are complicit in this and how they increased um, the addictiveness of cigarettes, they targeted populations um, to, to keep them smoking. And so it's really a complicated situation. We try to help people understand that, um, and in that way they can kind of start coping with that self-blame that they might feel about smoking. And are the, those messages to patients the same messages to the public about uh, changing the public perception or attitude? You know, the, the, the way that we've done it is, has been to be much more confrontational with society. Um, we launched a campaign called No One Deserves to Die um, and really tried to get people to think. Um, we the, Briefly, the campaign started off with, with several groups, um, advertisements for several groups. I'm going to start over again. Sorry about that. Um, mm-hmm. The... Um, we recently had a, a campaign called No One Deserves to Die, and the gist of that campaign was really to turn on its ear the idea that, that people who uh, smoked deserve to get lung cancer. And so we think that in order to change societal views, you have to be a lot more confrontational than educational necessarily. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting. Um, Valerie, talk to me a little bit about melanoma, coping with these challenges, talking to patients uh, who are maybe dealing with the, this idea of, of self-blame or shame, bring, bring, bringing this upon themselves. How do you talk to patients and how do you change public perception or attitude? Oh, you know, I have to say listening to Maureen, um, there are so many similarities between the lung cancer and the melanoma experience. So for most melanoma patients, that melanoma was seeded when they were teenagers. And who among us didn't have one or two burns? And for some people, that's not going to make a difference. And for others, it is. So my daughter was diagnosed with um, stage four melanoma at the age of 25. Mm. And she was not a tanner. But I can't tell you that she didn't have two or three bad burns as a teenager. And as I said, who among us is not involved in some kind of risky behavior as a teenager? So no one should be blamed for their disease. And we like to see this really as an educational opportunity that oftentimes melanoma patients, when discussing their disease with other people will say, well, this is the kind of behavior I now know is the kind of thing I shouldn't have been involved in. And like Maureen, as I said, very similarly, we also Mm -hmm. blame the Indoor Canning Association Mm -hmm. for not making it clear that that is highly risky behavior. And we know that those people who use tanning beds, for many of them, it becomes addictive and that indoor tanning is more dangerous than even uh, tanning 
outdoors. So, you know, I think as the other guests have said, no patient should ever blame themselves for so let, yeah. Happens. So let, let's let's go to some of those facts for a minute, though, Valerie. I think it's really important what you're saying. So you're saying that indoor tanning beds are more dangerous than being out in the sun. They are more dangerous. They are more intense. And so we have led an effort around the country to ban indoor tanning under the age of 18, and that has been successful in many states. And we are now hoping that the FDA will ban it on a national level. And uh, and just another quick moment, Valerie. Um, I know in recent years we've learned a lot about the causes of skin cancer and melanoma and ways to prevent it. Can you just give us a fact or two, a tip? You know, we're, we're, uh, we're in March. We're moving into the spring and summer months here. Just a, 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 a tip or two about uh, protecting oneself. Yeah, so no, no tan is a good can- tan. It just mm-hmm. it doesn't, it doesn't exist. Um, on one hand, prevention, um, trying to stay out of the high noon sun, always wearing an SPF of at least 50, protective clothing. But the early detection, you know, similar to breast cancer, plays a huge role in the world of melanoma. This is a cancer that you can see. I believe it's, it's the only one that actually appears on your body. And so there is that opportunity for early detection. And mm-hmm. we would like people to check their skin once a month, um, mm-hmm. similar to doing a self-breast exam. Yes. And if they see anything that looks different than it looked like last month, then they should be on their way to a dermatologist. Great. I think it's great advice. Um, Tamika, I know that, that sometimes the stigma that we're talking about can lead to uncomfortable conversations for folks. What advice do you have for anyone who might, uh, you know, might be having one of these difficult conversations? Or like you said, folks who don't even want to tell people that they have cervical cancer for fear of what the judgment will be. Well, I always tell people, put themselves first. You know, they have to be comfortable telling their own story. If they're not comfortable, they don't have to talk about it. Um, but I want them to, to empower them. We have a new project that we do, Survivor, and we empower women to tell their story because we, you know, aim to show more realistic, real-life women, everyday women who are, you know, have battled this disease. And we really do just empower them to take ownership of their story because once you have ownership of it, no one can take it away. For me, it was very important to tell, you know, the audience about when I let people just assume that I had ovarian cancer. I remember one day before that conference was over, I said, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to learn everything that I can about HPV and cervical cancer, and I'm going to educate other people about it. And I took ownership of my story. Is there times when people say things that I, you know, cringe at or, you know, you think, oh, God, my aunt knows about that. I remember when my parent, my mother was alive, I was like, she's not going to be happy, you know, (laughs) with me talking about my below the belt cancer. But I took ownership of it. I owned it. And it's my story. And it's my story to tell, not someone else's. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Maureen, just quickly, we've only got a minute or so to the break here, but we're talking about society's views on these cancers. But do you find people, do you hear people saying, you know what, I think my family blames me. I think that, that uh, you know, maybe there's, may, maybe, uh, you know, I'm doing something here to my family. 
Oh, absolutely. And so, yeah, the way we conceptualize stigma is the self-stigma and then the stigma that the family, um, unfortunately, can put on a person and then societal. And, and some of that also includes the, the um, their medical practitioners, which is especially sad. But definitely within the family, um, oftentimes uh, if a person continued to smoke, the family is, is, you know, will say things like, told you to stop smoking, we tried you to get, you know, to stop smoking, those kinds of things. Um, the impact of lung cancer on on the family, on the relationship, on the finances is so great that um, sometimes the burden of that can yeah. can come out in stigmatizing uh, behaviors, uh, behaviors even by the yeah. family members, and that can be yeah. you know some of the toughest that they that they get. Yeah, yeah, so interesting. Uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking about uh, cancers that come along with a particular uh, stigma or blame. Uh, we've got a lot more to talk about. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355. Or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, 
Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Today's episode of Frankly Speaking About Cancer is sponsored in part by AstraZeneca, Millennium, the Takeda Oncology Company, and Purdue Pharma. We're joined today by Tamika Felder, founder and chief visionary of Tamika and Friends, Inc., Valerie Guild, co-founder and president of the AIM at Melanoma Foundation, and Maureen Rigney, director of community and support services at the Lung Cancer Alliance. Um, uh, on this next part of the conversation here, I, I, I want to play the little, a little uh, a myth versus fact game um, with each of you. We hear a lot about cancers and carcinogens in our lives. And, uh, you know, I would say a majority of people have never really looked into which of these uh, things are uh, true and, um, you know, which are, uh, which are myths. And uh, we may have some folks just joining us uh, on the show today, so we may be getting back to a few things that we've talked about already. But let's, let's do the myth-fact game. Valerie, I want to start with you. Let's discuss some common myths or misconceptions about uh, skin cancer and melanoma. For example, a lot of people believe in the ability of a, of a quote-unquote base tan, to guard their skin uh, from sun damage. Is it, tr- is it true that if you get a good base tan, then if you don't get burned, you don't have as much of a risk of skin cancer? Unfortunately, no. So every time your skin tans, browns, it's trying to tell you that it's being damaged. There is no such thing as a good tan. And although I mentioned before that clearly we know that there is... Um, a strong correlation between a couple of burns in um, teenagehood and then um, melanoma later on. Um, To some extent, tanning does exactly the same thing. It's literally, in teenagers, changing the DNA composition, and that's what your skin is showing. And, Valerie, are there some people more at risk of, of, uh, of sun damage or, or skin cancer than others? I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a very fair, freckly redhead. Am I at a greater risk than someone who has more of a tan complexion? Well, I mean, certainly there are people like you, and those were um, my daughter's um, traits as well, fair skin, blue eyes, freckles, red hair. Uh, if you have a family history of melanoma, if you have many moles. But the truth is, we don't really know, just like all of the other cancers, who is going to get melanoma and who isn't. So there are certainly African-Americans who get melanoma, darker-skinned people. You know, people should simply understand that we're all at risk and we should be taking the appropriate preventive measures. Valerie, are there other quickly other misconceptions about melanoma that are widely believed but not necessarily true? Well, certainly the indoor tanning part is one mm-hmm. that we harp on often because we have seen a meteoric rise in young women with melanoma. So it's the number one um, cancer killer of young women before the age of of 30 and the second most prevalent cancer of those 15 to 25 year olds and we know that there's a correlation between the indoor tanning mm-hmm. and that high melanoma rate. Yeah, very important to reinforce. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, Tamika, uh, my question for you, uh, we know that now there is an HPV vaccine. Um, does that HPV vaccine pr- prevent, uh, protect against all types of cervical cancer? Can a person gets cervical cancer without getting HPV. Can you talk about that? 
They can, about 1%. The, the cervical cancer is caused um, by HPV in 99.9% of the cases, so there is a very small percentage that can get cervical cancer without having the human papillomavirus. And can a person become infected with HPV without having sexual intercourse? Yes, they can, and it goes back to the description of sexual intercourse. You can get cervical cancer without penetrative sex, skin-to-skin, genital skin touching, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which also and leads to, you know, cause, um, people, uh, lesbians, would think that they couldn't get cervical cancer, but they are, too, also at risk for cervical cancer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what's the what would you say is the current uh, conversation about the HPV vaccine? What's the uptake rate? What do we know about it? The uptake rate still isn't where um, those of us who are fighting um, to get more and more people vaccinated against it, um, but it's definitely doing well. Um, in places like Australia, we're seeing that vaccination is truly working. They're already seeing that they have less people who have abnormal taps than pre-cervical cancer, i.e. cervical dysplasia, because of it. Those, those numbers are coming down. So in the U.S., we're still not there with the uptake of the vaccine. There is a lot of anxiety around vaccines, especially new vaccines. Um, there's a new form of the vaccine that's already out, Gardasil 9, which is also going to help in the uh, fight against anal, vulvar, and hopefully head and neck cancers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what, what's, the, what's the opposition to the vaccine? that it's a new vaccine and hasn't been long enough. And my personal favorite, not really, that it will make someone's child sexually promiscuous. It is not a vaccine that will make someone sexually promiscuous. And the reason that the numbers are lower is because we do know that people are having sex younger and younger, and it's so to protect them before they're exposed to the human papillomavirus. That's why uh, it's FDA approved from 9 to 26 with 11 to 12 being the prime time to get the vaccine. Okay. Okay. Uh, Maureen, let's talk about lung cancer. Um, Have you found that a lot of people believe that lung cancer exclusively affects smokers? Oh, sure. (laughs) Absolutely. Some people still believe that um, lung cancer is a smoker's disease, quote unquote. But the fact is that um, 15% of lung cancer that's diagnosed today is in never smokers. And um, another 60% is uh, diagnosed in folks who quit smoking uh, some decades ago. So we know for a medical fact that smoking can greatly increase um, the risk of of, uh, of lung cancer, what do we know about someone even when they're diagnosed with, with lung cancer if they quit? I mean, you hear a lot of folks say, well, I'm just going to keep smoking. It's too late to quit. I already have lung cancer. What do we know about the, uh, the, the health or the benefits of quitting even when diagnosed? Yeah, absolutely. And so, well, obviously smoking is an undeniable risk for developing lung cancer and other diseases. Um, the, the fact is it's never too late to quit. Uh, with regard to risk, the earlier a person quits, the, the lower their risk becomes. And we know that quitting decreases the risk for many other diseases beyond lung cancer, obviously including stroke, heart disease, other cancers, and lung disorders. And you're right, the benefits, um, uh, those benefits and more exist even after a diagnosis of lung cancer. Um, some surgeons won't operate on someone who's uh, operable for lung cancer because 
Uh, smoking can interfere with healing process. Uh, there's evidence that nicotine can kind of spur the cancer, so smoking can continue to, to help the cancer to grow. Um, so uh, quitting is really one of the most important things a person can do, and it's never too late to quit. Uh, Maureen, what about, um, I'd love to ask you about, uh, does you know smoking cigars increase your risk of lung cancer or what about other I mean we're seeing you know it's state by state the, the legalization of marijuana um, is there a link between marijuana and lung cancer what do we know about cigar smoking uh, educate us on those topics yeah and it's hard to believe that in an era when we you know we continue to increased smoking bans that now marijuana is being legalized all over the country. Um, different different topics, certainly, but um, health-wise, it, it is an issue, certainly. Um, and just as Valerie said that there's no safe tan, our stance is that there isn't there's no safe tobacco product. Um, we know that for someone who only smokes cigars, uh, their risk may be less, but if the person also smokes cigarettes, and, and many people smoke both, um, it's the same level of risk. Uh, marijuana is um, kind of, it's a, the jury's still out. We do know that marijuana smoke has the same cancer-causing chemicals as tobacco does, and because of the way that it's smoked and held into the lungs longer, it deposits a lot more tar into the lungs. So while smoking marijuana alone hasn't been absolutely proven to increase the risk for lung cancer, uh, people who use both uh, marijuana and cigarettes and, and use them a lot are certainly at risk. So we always just say there's no safe uh, tobacco product. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I certainly I think we all probably know a lot of folks who are occasional Cigar smokers, um, could, mm-hmm. you know, could that be could that be why it, the the risk is not as as great as because those who generally are smoking cigars maybe only smoking an occasional cigar versus those who are smoking cigarettes maybe are smoking more frequently. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And it's hard to tease out. I mean, you think about trying to do research on that and finding out how much uh, if someone smokes both cigars and cigarettes, it's kind of hard to figure out what came from what. Right, right, right. Are there other, as we get to our break here, Maureen, are there other popular opinions about lung cancer, myths, misconceptions about lung cancer that simply aren't true? Um, yeah. Uh, luckily, now um, there, there is a way to screen for lung cancer in folks that are at highest risk. And um, while that has been the case for several years, it's only now just getting traction and, and screening um, for lung cancer being done well and right is, is becoming available all over the country. And in that way, we'll catch the, the disease early when it's still at its most curable um, and can, age. Can you give us a sense, Maureen, of when you say folks who are at high risk or highest risk, can you give us a range is that you smoked a certain number of years or a certain number of cigarettes in those years? Sure. Um, just basically, uh, over the age of uh, folks who are over the age of 55, who smoked uh, 30 pack year, they have a 30 pack year history, which is a pack a day for 30 years or two packs a day for 15 years, or the equivalent, um, and that either are still smoking or have not smoked or have stopped. Sorry about that. Stopped smoking within the last 15 years. Okay. Um, okay. So those folks should definitely go and talk to their doctor about some of the new screening options that are available. Absolutely. Great. I think that's great advice. Um, This is a great conversation. We still have more to cover. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today we're talking about the blame game and we're talking about certain cancers that come with a a, uh, a heightened stigma, uh, a heightened blame 
um, on the show today. We have Tamika Felder uh, from uh, Tamika and Friends, Valerie Guild, co-founder and president of AIM at Melanoma, and Maureen Rigney, director of community and support services at the Lung Cancer uh, Alliance. We've got uh, a lot more to cover today on Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're going to take a quick break here, and we'll be right back. I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, sponsored in part today by McKesson's Giving Comfort Program, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Greenville Health System, and Morphotech. Uh, we've had a great discussion so far today um, uh, with uh, our guest, Tamika Felder, founder and chief visionary of Tamika and Friends, uh, Valerie Guild, co-founder and president of the AIM at Melanoma Foundation, and Maureen Rigney, director of 
Community and Support Services at the Lung Cancer um, Alliance. I want to talk, uh, ask each of you to just take a moment or two to comment about, um, about research uh, in, in your particular area of focus, research and funding. Uh, because these types of cancer carry the stigma and, and uh, some can be seen to be preventable, is it difficult finding funding research, uh, you know, and, and funding to research treatments and, and, and cures? Does the stigma that we're talking about extend to funding some of the medical aspects of, of the disease. I'll start with you, Valerie. So actually, we've been very lucky in the area of melanoma. And in the last four or five years, we've had five or six new melanoma drugs approved. But the one thing that I, I would like to add is that as good as these drugs are, we still know that the majority of patients, uh, certainly late-stage melanoma, um, will probably die from their melanoma. And so we want people to continue to understand that prevention and early detection are our best weapons against this disease. Let me ask you um, to make it the same question about research and funding. We've also been very lucky, you know, um, now that they know the cause of cervical cancer. Um, you know, I'm really excited about a drug that's coming out that's going to help women with late-stage cervical cancer. Um, that's going to be really, really, really wonderful. Um, and so there's always room for more research and funding. Um, the more we know about it, the better we are and the more that we can help women and their families. Um, another thing uh, that I'm really uh, happy is that now researchers know that HPV is not only the culprit behind cervical cancer, but behind several other cancers. So you're going to see a lot of cancers kind of banding together to talk about HPV-related cancer in the coming years. And that's also going to, I think, give us more visibility. It's good to hear the good news. Um, Maureen, what about lung cancer? Well, uh, the stigma has definitely affected research funding for lung cancer, uh, which has been the, the leading cause of cancer deaths for many, many decades. And yet, um, for instance, breast cancer research receives more than 20 times the dollar amount per, excuse me, per death in federal research funding um, than does lung cancer. So, that's so just, say that, just say for, that again. I don't want to gloss over that, Maureen. Just course. say that again about um, lung cancer, that so it is the leading cause more than, of cancer death yeah, in this country, correct? Yeah. Yes, so lung cancer yeah. has long been the leading cause of cancer deaths. In fact, it's second only to heart disease for cancer deaths in the United States. Okay. I mean, for deaths in the United States at all. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but breast cancer receives more than 20 times the dollar amount per death. And so that's how research dollars are measured per death, which is awful, but that's how it's measured mm-hmm. um, per death and research federal funding. So um, essentially, breast cancer receives 20 times more research funding um, at the federal level than does lung cancer. Um, Now, having said that, we have the last several years have been in a place where we have learned so much more about lung cancer than ever before. More research is being done. More treatment options are becoming available. But it's still not enough to to combat, you know, what is the nation's uh, leading cancer killer. Mm -hmm. There's not enough research into the entire spectrum of lung cancer. Mm -hmm. There's not enough for all types of the disease. Mm -hmm. And so we just keep fighting uh, every day for more equitable distribution of research dollars and also access to early detection, which is so crucial, and new treatment options. Great. 
Great. So as we get towards the end of the show here, I just would like to ask each of you to take a quick minute to tell our listeners about your organization um, and how folks can find you. Give us your website. Give us your 800 number. This is a great time for our listeners to grab a pen and a piece of paper so they can learn um, more about you. Uh, Tamika, let's start with you and Tamika and Friends. Sure. Um, uh, Tamika and Friends has been around for a decade. Um, we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary in January. And Congratulations. We're really about that. Thank you so much. Um, you can find us at Tamika, T-A-M-I-K-A, and Friends.org. Our newest and greatest project, Survivor.org. C-E-R-V-I-B-O-R um, is where we train uh, cervical cancer patients, survivors, and advocates, even women who have had HPV disease, to be advocates for this movement so that we can break down stigma. Um, sharing is caring. We teach them how to share their advocacy survivor story. Um, we're available on all platforms of social media. As someone who was diagnosed at 25, I'm really excited that you can post a tweet, a Facebook update, and be connected to so many amazing organizations. And so that's what we're all about. Terrific, terrific. Valerie, tell us about AIM at Melanoma. So we've just celebrated our 11th anniversary. We are in the U.S. We're all over Europe. We're in Latin America. You can go to the aimatmelanoma.org website, and that's in every possible language. We have um, a dedicated melanoma oncology nurse available. Um, she's at 877-246-2635. And you can contact us directly by email, and we are always putting together melanoma support groups based around specific issues for young people, for caregivers, etc. Fantastic. Maureen, Lung Cancer Alliance, tell us what you're doing and how folks can find you. Sure. Um, well, we are uh, actually celebrating our 20th year this year, um, and the easiest way to reach us is through our toll-free helpline. That's 800 298 2436. Our website is www.lungcanceralliance.org. And through either of those um, avenues, you can access our materials. We actually have a very popular coping with reactions to your diagnosis brochure, and that's designed to help people understand and start to cope with the stigma associated with lung cancer. So that's a particular uh, brochure of interest to this program. We also have the Phone Buddy program. Uh, Tamika talked earlier about the importance of being able to connect with people um, who are going through similar situations. So that's a one-on-one match by phone um, with someone else who is going through or has been through uh, the lung cancer experience. Um, We also track the lung cancer support groups across the country on our website and have recently started to um, uh, launch our own support groups in in parts of the country that have need and and didn't have uh, groups before. And in addition to the other things we do, we are currently launching an app um, called LCA Unite, which is um, a place where people can go and connect and also has a symptom tracker. So we hope to add more uh, features to that app soon, but that can be found in the usual places where apps can be can be accessed. <laughs> Terrific. I just want to thank the three of you for, for joining today. It's been a great conversation. I know we're talking about what can be certainly challenging conversations for patients and families, and I know that you guys and your organizations are helping folks to um, uh, to get through it. I want to mm-hmm. remind folks that um, we have a host of 
um, uh, resources at the cancer support community. We're celebrating our 33rd anniversary this year. Congratulations. Um, and so um, we have uh, 50 centers around the country where we provide support groups, educational programs, nutrition, exercise, stress reduction for people with all cancers, including the three cancers that we've been talking about today, um, and for the family members and loved ones of people with cancer. We also have a very vibrant online community at cancersupportcommunity.org. And if you want to find a location or if you want to talk to one of our um, helpline counselors, we've got licensed counselors um, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Time at 888-793-9355. And you can call these folks if you're struggling with your diagnosis, if you're dealing with some of the guilt or blame or shame issues that we're talking about today, you want to talk through that. Um, with a counselor or, or if you're a family member who would like to speak to one of our counselors, uh, you can call us at 888-793-9355 to speak with one of our folks or to find uh, one of our centers uh, near you. All of our programs are provided free of charge to, uh, to patients and families. And last year we provided over $50 million in free services to patients and families across the country. So I appreciate everybody joining us today Uh, for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tebaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org.